program is brought to you by UCL, London's global university. Uh, the German steel town of Duisburg, 15th of August 2007, the early hours of the morning. 54 shots are fired uh, by two killers at six victims. This is uh, an execution, an underworld execution of great professionalism. The two killers even take the time to walk up to each of the six victims in turn and fire a coup de grace into their heads. Uh, it was Europe's, the, well, the worst ever uh, mafia bloodbath outside of the United States and Italy. And it marks the date when Europe finally woke up to the existence and the importance of what the New York Times called um, the unpronounceable mafia of Calabria, the Indrangheta. Uh, the Indrangheta comes from Calabria, in the, if you like, the toe of the Italian boot. And it's established a preeminence, criminal preeminence in Italy, really since the uh, 80s, nine, uh, 1990s, when it started dealing direct with South American uh, cocaine cartels, the producer cartels. It is the mafia with the most elaborate rituals uh, on the body or in the pocket of one of the victims. A boy of 18 who'd just been celebrating his birthday was found this image, partially burned image of the Arch Archangel Michael, which showed investigators that he'd not just been celebrating his birthday because the Archangel Michael is the image that is traditionally used in Indrangheta initiation rituals. Um, it's the mafia of all of Italy's mafias that has proved most difficult to penetrate for the authorities. And it is also the best at spreading its metastases around Italy and around the world. There are many other countries apart from Germany that now have Indrangheta colonies in them. We know much less both historically and in a contemporary sense about the Indrangheta than we do about Italy's other major two mafias, the Sicilian Mafia, or Cosa Nostra, and the Camorra of Naples. Um, recent operation, the summer of, of last year, in fact, gives us our most up-to-date profile of the organization's structure. I don't want to dwell on this on, for too long, but it's just to give you an idea of the kind of organization we're looking for when, as I set out to do, we try and go back into the historical record to find its origins. The Ndrangheta has a structure, beginning at the bottom here, with the Ndrina. The Ndrina is the basic cell of the organization, and it's based around family ties. It has a patriarch at its center, a boss, often with a number of male children, and uh, relatives by blood and marriage. That's the basic cell of the organization, and those family ties are what make it difficult to penetrate for the authorities. A, a number of Indrine, two or three Indrine, are grouped into what's called a locale, a local, which is um, itself governs territory and is itself subdivided into two compartments for reasons of security. 
the junior members uh, with access to less money and less power uh, are in the so-called minor society or società minore. The more senior members, including the officers of the locale, the capo, the contabile, who's the bookkeeper essentially, uh, and the capocrimine, who's like a sort of day-to-day um, -day manager of criminal activity, go into the società maggiore, the major society. Continuing upwards, excuse me, um, above the level of the local, the locale, there are three mandamenti or precincts covering large sort of macro areas of southern Calabria um, and other branches of the Indrangheta in Italy and around the world uh, also operate, if you like, at this level within the organization. And at the top, as we know from this very recent investigation, there is a body called the Gran Crimine, the Great Crime, also known as La Provincia, the province, presided over by a figure known as the Capo Crimine, the head of crime, the boss of crime. I won't say much about this for now, but I do want to emphasize that this is not, that we're, investigators are still working out what kind of power, what degree of power these titles carry with them. The man who was arrested in the summer and accused of being the head of the provincia, the head of the Gran Crimine, a man called Domenico Pedizano, is not a super boss. This is not an organization when, where power, as it were, cascades down from the top. Opedizano, the investigations, cl investigators claim, was more of an arbitrator, an expert on procedure, uh, such as initiation rituals, ranks, and so on, uh, a mediator, so not uh, a governing boss, uh, if you like. Um, the Indrangheta is also more complicated than the Sicilian Mafia in that the, um, the positions, the offices held within the organization structure are not the only measure of status within the organization. Those offices are elected and temporary, whereas these, the ranks that the in, in individual Indrangatisti hold, are permanent. They, they call them doti, gifts, or flowers, fiori, and they're an ascending scale of seniority. You start at the bottom as a giovane d'onore, a, a sort of on the threshold of membership, an honored youth, if you like. If you're in the minor society, you hold one of three ranks, picciotto, which means lad, camorista, camorista di sgarro, which means something like camorista who's up for a fight. Um, going further up, the ranks, the major society ranks, and so on, and right up until the most senior fiore, the most senior rank, which is that of padrino, which means uh, godfather. Why should we study the history of this organization? Organized crime is normally the domain of sociology and criminology. Well, one reason is that this organization has been around for a long time, not quite as long as the Camorra and the Sicilian Mafia, but a long time, over a century nonetheless. Um, and that's no coincidence. That's because these are organizations which plan for the long term. They think over the long term. So history is a very important discipline for understanding them. Um, and 
because of um, the third reason we should understand their history is because they think it's important. They have an official founding myth. It's the story of three Spanish knights, Osso, Mastroso, and Carcagnoso, uh, which translates something as bone, master bone, and heel bone. And their story is that of three knights who in the Middle Ages, some time in the past, fled from Spain because their sister had been raped and murdered and they'd avenged the crime in blood. They took refuge on the Sicilian island of Favignana and there they invented the rules of the honoured society. Uh, at that point, Osso went to Sicily, founded the Sicilian Mafia, the Honoured Society of Sicily. Mastrosso went to Naples and formed the Camorra, the Honoured Society of Naples. And Carcagnoso went to Calabria to form the Indrangheta, the Honoured Society of Calabria. Before I start telling the story of their origins, just a word on the name. The word Indrangheta or Indrangheta takes hold in public discourse as a name for the Calabrian Mafia only in the mid-1950s. The word comes from a Greek dialect known as Grecanico, which is spoken in some parts of southern Calabria, a dialect that goes back to the time when uh, this part of the world was part of the Byzantine Empire. The time we're talking about, the time of their origins, uh, the 1880s and so on, the words used both by investigators and by the uh, indrangetisti themselves are things like mafiosi, camoristi, and so on. Terms borrowed, not coincidentally, from Sicily and Naples. But the name that in this period sticks most often is la picciotteria, which means something like laddishness or lads with attitude. Um, uh, one of the things that I'm going to demonstrate, I hope, over the next few minutes, is that they're the same thing. The Picciotteri and the Indrangheta are the same thing. What's the current state of research on the origins of the Indrangheta? Very briefly, we had a have a few sporadic reports of gang activity in the 1860s and 1870s. Then in the mid-1880s, the authorities, such as the prefect of Reggio Calabria I've cited, here start to take notice. They start to worry. They start to notice much more consistent a numerically significant presence of gangsters in Calabrian territory. And from that moment on, the evidence is overwhelming. Trial papers uh, are particularly significant, but other also sources. So that's the bare chronology we have at the moment. And we don't have much in the way of an explanation of how and why the Indrangheta took hold. The consensus basically is that Calabrian society is to blame. Calabrian society characterized by, by violence, by families, in other words, you know, the priority given to family ties over the more impersonal uh, relationships fostered by the modern state, patronage politics. That mixture, the consensus goes, somehow spontaneously generates the Indrangheta. It's what they called, in the language of the time, the immorality of the Calabrian ruling class. That's a consensus I'm going to challenge and qualify uh, over the next few minutes. This, just briefly, is a map of the area we're talking about, southern Calabria, the very tip of the toe of the boot, if you like. Um, 
And I'm going to look particularly at two areas, because there isn't that much evidence around about the origins of the Indrangheta. Uh, Calabria has a particularly tragic history of earthquakes, including the most lethal seismic event in the history of the Western world, the 1908 earthquake, which devastated, killed 80,000 people, devastated the area. Uh, that, combined with the history of maladministration in Calabria, means the archives aren't in a particularly good state. But I've identified two areas where um, we found a sufficient concentration of evidence to really turn the chronology of the Indrangheta's uh, emergence into something more like a narrative. And those two places are Palmi, up there, and Africo, down here, up in the mountains. Let me tell you a little bit more about these two places very briefly. This is a photograph I took of Palmi from above, appropriately enough with Christ and the two thieves looking down on it. And beyond... Uh, Tauro. in the fifties and the population moved to a new Africa by the coast. That's all that's left of it. Uh, a very different area. Let's begin in Palmi. A small town, eleven to twelve thousand inhabitants, but most importantly it's the administrative capital for a large area uh, for the whole of this area, the plain of Gioia Tauro, which is a plain, and Calabria is mostly mountainous, the Gioia Tauro is an area of relatively wealthy agriculture, and Palmi is the capital of it, and for that reason it has all, it has outposts of the Italian state, like a sub-prefecture, uh, a, a court complex, and of course, importantly, a prison, as we'll see. The plain of Gioataro, as I said, is an area of small holdings, not great estates, as uh, much of the rest of Calabria is, because a lot of church property is confiscated and privatized there after Italy is unified in 1860. It's an area, in other words, of cash crops, citrus fruit, the oranges of the Indrangheta, if you like, olive oil, wine. There's even a wine boom in the 1870s, a lot of investment in vines and land in that period. What happens? The newspapers in the spring of 1888 start to report razor slashings, people having their faces slashed by razors, formal knife point duels in the centre of the city. These are the telltale signs, as we'll see, of Comoro Mafia activity. The criminals are concentrated in the taverns and brothels where they extort money from gamblers and prostitutes. And in classic Mafia fashion, the victims refuse to testify. Within weeks, according to the press, order is close to breaking down. It's remarkably rapid what happens. The citizens are afraid to re leave their homes. Landowners are being intimidated, forced to take on members of the organization as guards on their land. This is the classic beginnings of the extortion racket 
regime, which is the basis of criminal territorial authority in southern Italy. Uh, extortion rackets are the tax base of organised crime. In June 1988, after one particularly nasty attack on a government official, the authorities finally act, and 24 men are arraigned in 1889. Who were these men? Who were these first picciotti? They're entirely representative of many other trials that would um, come in the years to come. They're mostly young. In their late teens or early 20s. The boss, a man called Francesco Lisciotto, at 60, was easily the oldest. And they're all laborers, almost all laborers or artisans, apart from one or two smallholders. They have very humble job titles, peasant, carter, waiter, shepherd, and so on. But most importantly, all, of all, 21 of 24 are veterans of the prison system. So it's not their sociological profile in terms of their jobs that's important, it's the fact that they've been in prison. And the judges reached, made historians' job very easily in an 1890 trial. This is, a, I'm going to quote from a series of trials I've been able to look at in Palmy. Um, the judges make the historians' job very easy. They tell us exactly where this association came from. The association originated in 1887 in the district prisons in Palmi under the name of Sect of Camoristi. From there, as and when its bosses and promoters were released, it spread to other towns and villages where it found fertile soil among the callow youth, old jailbirds and especially goat herds. A later trial the trials mount up without being able to uproot the organization. They have tattoos demonstrating their rank. They have a particular distinctive dress code, including tight trousers that flare over their shoes. They tie silk scarves in a special way. They comb their hair into what repeated uh, testimonies refer to as a butterfly-shaped quiff. They have an initiation ritual and the lowest rank is that of honoured youth. Giovane honorato, giovane donore. And the wording of their initiation ceremony, which begins with the boss saying, are you comfortable? And the initiate replying, very comfortable, and so on. It's a long ceremony. Um, bears a very, very close resemblance to the Indrangheta's initiation ritual today. Another trial, still in Palmi, 1897 shows us the organization. It's uh, divided into locally based cells or sections. Each cell is subdivided between a minor society and a major society. The minor society groups people, groups people with a lower rank of picciotto. The major society has the higher ranked camoristi. They each, each the major and minor society as today have their own boss, their own bookkeeper and so on we are dealing, without doubt, with the Indrangheta. There is even the first ever evidence, and I, I, I'm the person who unearthed this, of the, Maf the Calabrian Mafia's initiation ritual. This is a testimony from 1897 from a former member of the gang called Pasquale Trimboli, who says, 
tells the court that society was born from three knights, one from Spain, one from Palermo, and one from Naples. All three were Camoristi. Metaphorically speaking, these three Camoristi were a tree. The boss, the Spanish knight, was the trunk of the tree. The Palermo knight, who was the oldest, was the master bone, Mastrosso. And the third knight, the one from Naples, was the bone, Osso. The other members were the branches and the leaves. The honoured youths who aspired to become Picciotti were the flowers. All of this, including the metaphor of the tree, which is another very powerful organisational metaphor that the Indrangheta uses today about itself, the tree of knowledge, bears a very, very close family resemblance to the Indrangheta's mythology today. Okay? So we found the Indrangheta at its beginnings. Switching to Africa, a very different reality socially. This is not a rich economy of cash crops, it's a mountain woodland economy, forestry, charcoal, livestock. This is a place of poverty and um, uh, isolation. It's the area where, what are the last redoubt, if you like, of this Grecanic or this Greek dialect. I won't go into details about events in Africa. They centre around the, the, the documentation I've looked at is a huge trial, 150 uh, or so um, accused. Centres around the murder of a goat herd and Picciotto called Pietro Maviglia, who is lured out into the countryside during a bagpipe dancing party, has his throat cut and has salt poured on the wound. Uh, as well as multiple stab wounds. It's a very public murder. It's an intimidatory murder. His body is left where it is uh, by way of intimidating a few other, uh, other local people. Now, despite the isolation of Africa, the Picciotteria in Africa has the same structure, the same dress code, the same mores as in Palmi. One interesting difference is they, they are uh, much more expert in cattle rustling. They steal the cattle locally and put it on the market where the brands can't be identified through their friends in places like Palmi. We're dealing with a network already that is much more than local. They're part of the same organisation. And once again, in Africa, we find that the ex-cons are the people in control. Okay? The Indrangheta, senior members of this organisation emerge from prison straight into senior roles in the organisation and the outside world. Men like Domenico Calea, uh, age 34, serves 10 years for, the violent, for a violent rape on his release, immediately becomes the bookkeeper for the Africa section and it's dueling in structure. Ritual duels are part of the promotion uh, ritual for the Indrangheta in this period. There's also a charismatic boss or president, as the members call him, called Filippo Vellona. He too is released after a long prison sentence and assumes uh, a very senior role across a wide area of Calabrian territory. The story so far then, yes, 1860s and 1870s, sporadic instances because you've got groups of criminals within the prison system who are getting together to commit crimes but who have not yet established any kind of what we would call territorial control. 
the mid-1880s, there begins a crime wave that rapidly leads to the establishment of that territorial control. There are a number of trials, according to one magistrate at the time, 1,854 Picciotti are convicted between 1885 and 1902. Southern Calabria never recovers from this crime wave. It's from this moment on that the Indrangheta establishes territorial control. Now that picture obviously begs a number of questions. The first one is, of course, about prison. What is going on in prison if it can generate this organisation? Well, we know from a number of sources that the prison system of southern Italy was in the hands of gangs, a Camorra, that bore a very, very close resemblance to the Picciotteria, and it was in the hands with a minor society, a major society, a code of honour, practice of scarring people's faces with razors as a punishment, duels, and so on and so forth, um, right from the early 19th century. Uh, it's a very, very similar organisation. One of the pieces of evidence is the autobiography of this man, who was a Calabrian uh, prison crime boss before the Indrangheta emerged into the outside world. There are plenty of other cases of prison criminal organisations establishing their authority on the outside world. The Russian Mafia is a case in point. For a long time, the Vori were, were a prison gang, and with the fall of the Soviet Union, they managed to establish their authority on the outside. Similarly, the South African number gangs, the 26s, 27s, and 28s, that emerge um, in the 90s with, uh, with the establishment of democracy, for reasons I don't have time to go into. But the same transformation happens also in Naples, a generation earlier, and this is our most instructive example. We're, let's look very briefly at the Honoured Society of Naples, which has a history we know much better. The Honoured Society of Naples takes shape when political prisoners during the Risorgimento, during the movement for Italian unification, many of whom were Freemasons, are imprisoned. And the criminals learn the business of organizing yourself like a Freemasonry, that's what mafias are, they are Freemasonries of crime, in, from these patriotic prisoners. And the patriotic prisoners also give them their invitation card into history because they recruit them as revolutionary muscle, just as the Bourbon authorities that the patriots wanted to overthrow, recruit them as police spies. And that, as I said, is their invitation card into history, from that point on, they can start to establish uh, their authority in the outside world. So, in this case, it's that combination of politics and violence that is the passage for criminal power from the prisons into the outside world. So, why does the Indrangheta emerge in the 1880s? What's the reason? The courts are very good at telling us what happened. They don't often ask themselves why. Well, the economy is undoubtedly part of it. There was an agricultural crisis. Uh, protectionism hit uh, the, the, these cash crops are important in some areas. You've got a lot of debt-ridden smallholders and hungry laborers. So there are plenty of recruits. But I don't think the economy is the real secret. I think 
politics is to blame. Once again, it's that combination of politics and violence that's the secret. Now, the authorities aren't very keen to talk about this thing for reasons that will become obvious, but we do get fragmentary reports uh, that talk about the police closing up, co cozying up to the Bichotti at election time. We, taught, we learned that Domenico Calea, that boss I mentioned in Africa, was the son of a former mayor. And we learned that the defendants in the Africa trial, for all their poverty, for all the isolation of their, their village, had expensive lawyers and included people who, because of their prosperous financial state, I'm quoting from a judge, can only have been driven to crime because they are innately wicked. So, what is going on? Well, the 1880s are the years of Italy's entry into the era of mass politics. Electoral reforms in 1882 and 1888 mean that a quarter of adult males are now entitled to vote. Local government gets more power and more resources. Resources that, that family groups and criminal groups want to get their hands on. There is an increase in the demand for violence in the political domain with the arrival of mass politics. Both from the centre, from the Ministry of the Interior that wants to use the police to make sure that the right candidates win elections, and locally from local candidates who want to impose themselves on others. That is the reason, I think, and the reason, of course, the authorities won't talk about very much, talk about this very much, is that, uh, that um, uh, they're complicit in it. Uh, that, I think, unfortunately, democratization seems to be, or the, a, a sort of perverse democratization is one of the reasons, the main reason why the Indrangheta emerged when it did. Now, the Indrangheta, through its history, goes through many, many more important changes. One of the superficial symptoms of those changes is the, is the change in the dress code. Sometime uh, in the early 20th century, the flared trousers and the strange haircuts disappear. Another thing that's very important is the Indrangheta learns to make crime into a family business. I can't go into this now, but the Indrangheta um, begins as a society of ex-cons and through the 20th century learns the business of transmitting criminal patrimonies down through the generations, recruiting sons, using women properly in its organisation. It becomes more family-centred. That's a long story of development that I don't have time to tell here, but which I do tell, here's the plug, um, in my book uh, which is due out in June, which is a parallel history of the Sicilian Mafia, the Neapolitan Camorra, and of course the Indrangheta of Calabria. Thank you. Wonderful. Any questions? Um, I have a question here. Would you like to take my uh, mic? Thank you. Approach different from Diego Gambetta's *The Origins of Sicilian Mafia*. Uh, Diego Gambetta's book isn't about the origins of the Sicilian Mafia. It's, it's a very important sociology 
of the Sicilian Mafia, an account of its um, economics, if you like, uh, of, of the Mafia as a kind of criminal brand, brand of protection. So uh, Gambetta's book's extremely important, but it's not a history. Okay, one here as well. Okay. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, why do you think this, this phenomenon was just in the south of Italy and not, it didn't happen in the north? Um, it's a, the question was, I don't know if people heard it, is why does this happen in the south and not in the north? Um, that's a long story. It's in the south, really, that we get um, an attempt in the early 19th century, which is really when this takes hold, by a, the Bourbon state to modernise itself, and yet deep down it remains an ancien regime society where power is parcelled out to local groups who are able to assert themselves. Local pre-mafias, if you like, whether they're members of the ruling class, of the poor. Um, uh, and th that's, that's really the problem. The problem goes back to the Bourbon state, the failings of the Bourbon state. Uh, and then Italy, northern Italy as well as, as uh, uh, after unification, learns to manage the south in this way and perpetuates the problem. Good. I have a couple of questions at the back. Yes? Yeah. Um, how many members does the Nagrata have nowadays? And furthermore, is there a wider circle of supporters? Um, the numbers are, are bound to be approximate, but it's thought to be the most numerous. I think it's something like 7,000 is the is the number that's most frequently cited. But of course, you know, the people who've actually been through a ritual and become members are only a tiny part of the problem. You're talking about a huge uh, area of support in society. Uh, and that's the most worrying thing about the Indrangheta, is it seems to draw on the most consent in part of Calabrian society. Okay, I think we have another question at the back there. Do we have a gentleman at the back? Um, or the lady there? Yes? Thank you. Um, because of the geographical um, closeness of this area to Sicily and also to Naples. What relationships or, or relationship, if any, do they have with the other mafia bodies? And particularly in terms of this sort of legend that they have about the, the three knights. Mm. Well, the, the, the main relationship between them, historically and, and on a day-to-day -day basis, is within the prison system. It still is. That's, you know, that's the sort of university of crime, the, the uh, way they communicate with one another, they, they learn from each other. And that pattern of communications has gone on right from the beginning. They don't enter very often into conflict, except within the prisons, because um, mafia power is all about territory, and the, the Indrangheta has no ambitions to take over territory in Sicily. Uh, the interesting area for this is eastern Sicily, around Messina, um, which is a city I know well, where they basically have a kind of diplomatic relationship. They leave territorial control to local bosses, and then when there's anything important uh, going on, the guys in suits from Palermo and Reggio Calabria meet to thrash out a deal. Um, and it's the, the very peaceable nature of the business relationship between the uh, the Mafia and the Indrangheta in eastern, eastern Sicily, around Messina, in the province of Messina, 
gives you, is, is a frightening um, instance of their, their power and their ability to collaborate. Okay, I've got one chance for one more question over here. Fascinating talk. What happened when Italy was under the control of the fascists to Ndrangheta? Um, it's a complicated story, the story of fascism. It's been trumpeted, not least by the fascists themselves, as a great wave of repression that did away with the Sicilian Mafia and, and uh, uh, the Camorra in the Neapolitan hinterland. The truth we now know, and there's some remarkable documentation that's just emerged, is uh, it simply didn't. The, you know, the most convincing, we have evidence that already by 1932 in Sicily, uh, when uh, the Mafia basically, they send around messages saying, okay, the trials have now finished from the, the, the uh, fascist repression, we can start up again. Um, in Calabria, there, was, there were also waves of repression, but Calabria never ever attracts the kind of publicity and interest that Sicily does. Calabria is systematically ignored. It's simply not as powerful, as important economically as Palermo and Naples. You can govern Italy by ignoring Calabria. You can't govern Italy by ignoring Palermo and Naples. So uh, the story under fascism as under ever, ever since of the Calabrian Mafia is of a mafia that's basically been ignored or in a land that's been ignored. Good. I'd like to say thanks very much to uh, John for an absolutely wonderful talk. And it, are you feeling comfortable? Are you feeling comfortable? Then buy the book. Thank you very much. To find out more about UCL, please visit us at itunes.ucl.ac.uk. Thank you.